Welcome to tape number 8 of Truth, Victory Over Error, or the True Principles of the Christian Religion by David Dixon. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Truth, Victory Over Air by David Dixon, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing our reading of Truth, Victory Over Air from chapter 22 of lawful oaths and vows question number 5 just repeating the question again are popish monastical vows of a perpetual single life professed poverty and regular obedience so far as being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and single snares in which no Christian may entangle himself continuing on now the vow of professed poverty is unlawful First, because the Lord did not allow beggars to be among his people of old. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. Second, because Agar wished that the Lord might not give him poverty, lest he should steal and take the name of God in vain. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Third, because the Lord will have every man eat his bread in the sweat of his face. Genesis 3, verse 19. Fourth, because the apostle commands the Thessalonians to work with their own hands. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. Fifth, because professed poverty hindereth a greater good vis-a-vis our charity and benevolence towards the poor and indigent, indigent members of Christ, which is contrary to the apostle's rule. Ephesians 4, verse 28. The vow of regular obedience is likewise unlawful. First, because it makes us the servants of men, which is contrary to the apostle. You are bought with a price, be not ye the servants of men, viz. to do anything for the service or obedience of men, which should be repugnant to the commands of the service of God, or suffer or allow yourselves in spiritual things to be brought in bondage by any man, that you should not freely use that which the Lord hath made free to you, to us. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23. Chapter 23 of the Civil Magistrate Question 1 Hath God armed the civil magistrate with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers? Yes. Romans 13, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. 1 Peter 2, verse 13 and 14. Well then, do not the Sassinians err who maintain that it is not the duty of the civil magistrate to punish the guilty with death? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because God hath expressly commanded 
that transgressing idolaters be put to death. Deuteronomy 12, verse 7, excuse me, 17, verse 7, and 19, verse 21. Second, because it appertains to the office and duty of the magistrate to punish the guilty with death. Romans 13, verse 4, 1 Peter 2, verse 14. Third, because the capital punishment of evildoers makes others stand in awe and fear to offend. Deuteronomy 8, verse 11, and 19, Deuteronomy 19, verse 20. Fourth, because if the magistrate shall neglect to inflict due punishment, the Lord himself will be avenged on that magistrate. 1 Kings 20, verse 42, Numbers 25, verse 4. Fifth, because he that smiteth a man so that he die shall be surely put to death. Exodus 22, verse 12. Six, because all that take the sword shall perish by the sword. Matthew 26, verse 52. Namely, without a lawful call or order for it. They shall perish by order and command of the magistrate to whom the Lord hath given the sword for this very same end to punish evildoers with death. Genesis 9, 6 and Romans 13, verse 4. Question 2. Is it the duty of the civil magistrate to take order that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed, all abuses in worship and discipline reformed, all idolaters, gainsayers, and other obstinate dissenters be obliged and forced to quit their tenets and opinions and conform themselves to the true worship and service of God according to his law? Yes. Isaiah 49, verse 23, 2 Chronicles 15, verse 12 and 13, and Chronicles 34, verse 33, 2 Chronicles 18, verse 4, excuse me, 2 Kings 18, verse 4, and 2 Kings 23, verse 1 to the 26th verse. Ezra 7, verse 23, 25, 26, 27, and 8, 28, Leviticus 24, verse 16. Well then, do not the Quakers and other sectaries err who judge it anti-Christian and the practice of the Church of Rome that the civil supreme magistrate with the assistance of the Church and her censures should by his coactive power force and oblige all his subjects to a reformation of religion and to a conformity to the true worship, sound doctrine, and discipline of the Church? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because it is foretold by the prophet Isaiah that in the days of the gospel, kings shall be nursing fathers and queens nursing mothers to the church of God. Isaiah 49, verse 23. Second, because Artaxerxes, who was but a heathen king, was very careful to make a decree that whatsoever was commanded by the God of heaven should be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. And whosoever would not obey the law of God and the king, judgment was to be executed speedily upon him, whether by death, banishment, confiscation of goods, or imprisonment. For which singular mercy Ezra blessed the Lord God of his fathers, who had put such a thing in the king's heart. Chapter Ezra 7, 23, 26, 27, and 28. So did Nebuchadnezzar make a decree that if any people, nation, or language should speak anything amiss against the God of heaven, they should be cut in pieces and their houses made a dunghill. Daniel 3, verse 29. 
the like we read of Darius who made a decree that all men should tremble in fear before the God of Daniel chapter 6 verse 26 third from the example of Hezekiah who removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent to which the Israelites did burn incense 2 Kings 18 verse 4 fourth from the example of Josiah who made a thorough reformation and made all Israel Israel serve the Lord their God the word in the original imported that he in a manner forced and compelled them to the pure worship of God as a servant is forced and compelled to his work he by his royal power and authority kept them in order forbidding idolatry and commanding them to serve God no otherwise than according to his word 2 Chronicles 34 verse 33 and 2 Chronicles 15 verses 12 and 13 they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers and with all their hearts and with all their souls that whosoever should not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death whether small or great man or woman fifth because whosoever blasphemed the name of the Lord was surely put to death Leviticus 24 verse 16 this blaspheming was a piercing through or stabbing the name of the Lord as the original word properly signifies which may be done not only after this manner but by maintaining blasphemous errors and heresies sixth because the supreme magistrate is a keeper of both tables of the law of God as well as the first table which relates to religion and of our duty to God as the, of the second which relates to the righteousness which relates to righteousness and our duty to our neighbor if then he may punish evildoers who offend against the second table and force and compel them to obedience by the sword of justice which God hath put into his hand much more may he punish idolaters and blasphemers who offend against the first table and force and compel them to obedience seeing there are many sins against the first table which are more heinous and odious than the sins against the second table and though it be the simple practice of the church of Rome to force men and women to be of their religion which is superstitious and idolatrous yet it is not so to others who have the true religion among them and though our blessed Savior and his apostles did not use such means for propagating the gospel reserving the glory of conquering of souls to himself and the power of his spirit yet has taught nothing to the contrary but that kings and magistrates whom he has made nursing fathers to his church may according to the laudable example of the good kings of Judah improve their power for reformation and maintenance of his own religion and though religion hath been much advanced by suffering yet it will not infer that a Christian prince has not power to reform his own subjects or to extirpate blasphemers and heretics question three is it lawful for a Christian to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto yes Proverbs 8 verse 15 and 16 Romans 13 verse 1 2 and 4 well then do not the Anabaptist heir who maintain that it is not lawful for Christians to carry this office of a magistrate yes by what reasons are they confuted first because there is no power but of God and the powers which are are ordained of God Romans 13 verse 1 
Second, because Solomon says, By me, that is, by the Lord, kings reign and princes decree justice. Proverbs 8, verse 15. Third, because the magistrate exercises and executes God's judgments. Deuteronomy 1, verse 17. Fourth, because the magistrate receives all things from God which are necessary for the performance of his office. Numbers 11, verse 17. Fifth, because the Lord hath promised that magistrates under the gospel shall be nursing fathers to his church. Isaiah 49, verse 23. And shall make the whore desolate, naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Revelation 17, verse 16. Question 4. May the civil magistrate now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasions? Yes. Luke 13, verse 14. Matthew 8, verses 9 and 10. Revelation 17, verse 14 and 16. And Acts 10, verse 1 and 2. Well then, do not the Quakers, Anabaptists, and Socinians err who maintain that it is altogether unlawful now under the New Testament to wage war? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because God appointed and commanded lawful war. Numbers 31, verse 2. For it is said, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, where he was to fight the battles of the Lord against the Midianites and Amalekites. Judges 6.34 Nay, the Lord himself prescribes the manner and way of making war. Numbers 10 and Numbers 31, verse 27. Deuteronomy 20, verse 2 And giveth knowledge and skill to his generals and heroes to fight his own battles. Psalm 18, verse 34 Psalm 144, verse 1, all which are in no wise abrogated and taken away under the New Testament. Second, because the centurion that was converted to the faith did not lay down his office of a captain of a hundred, which surely he would have done if to war under the New Testament had been unlawful. Acts 10, verse 1, 2, and 47. The same may be said of the believing centurion, Matthew 8, 8, 9, and 10. Third, because the office of a soldier is not reprehended and reproved by John the Baptist, but rather approved. Luke 3, verse 14. Fourth, because opposition and defense against unjust violence, which oftentimes cannot be done without war, is the very law of nature. Fifth, because it is foretold that the kings of the earth shall make war against the beast. Revelation 14, verses 14 and 16. Question 5. May the civil magistrate assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven? No. Second Chronicles 26, verse 18, Matthew 18, verse 17, and Matthew 16, verse 19, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 28 and 29, Romans 10, 5, and Hebrews 5, 4. Well then, do not the Erastians err who maintain that the civil magistrate hath in himself all church power, and so may administer the sacraments and preach the word, and may exercise the power of the kingdom of heaven? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because Christ hath given so, no such power to magistrates, as evidently appears from all those places of Scripture where mention is made of the keys. There is not in them one syllable of the civil magistrate. Matthew 18, verse 17, and Matthew 16, verse 15 and 19. Second, if the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven agree to the magistrate as a magistrate, then ought it 
to agree to every magistrate though the magistrate were an infidel or a woman which is absurd third a magistrate as a magistrate is not a minister of the church as is evident from all the catalogues of the ministers of the church for in them you will not find any mention of the magistrate Ephesians 6 verse 11 Romans 12 verses 7 and 8 1 Corinthians 11 verses 8 and 9 and 10 Fourth, because before ever there was a Christian magistrate in the world, the church exercised all acts of church jurisdiction and government. The church ordained ministers and pastors, 1 Timothy 4.14, and inflicted the censure of excommunication, 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, and relaxed the penitent from censure, called a synod, and stigmatized heretics, Acts 15.5. Fifth, because God hath put a difference between the church government and the civil, and hath appointed distinct governors to them. Second Chronicles 19, verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. Sixth, because God did severally punish Saul and Uzziah for presuming to offer sacrifice which was proper to the priest only. First Samuel 13, verse 9, 10, and 13. Second Chronicles 26, verse 16 and 19. Question 6. Hath the civil magistrate power to call synods to be present at them and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God? Yes. 2 Chronicles 19, verse 10 and 11, and 2 Chronicles 29 and 30, and Matthew 2, verses 4 and 5. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that the judgment and care of religion doth not belong to the civil magistrate? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the custody and keeping of the divine law is committed by God to the civil magistrate. Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. Second, because it were for, was foretold that kings should be nursing fathers to the church. Isaiah 49, verse 23. Third, because it is the duty of the magistrate to take care that subjects may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. 1 Timothy 2, verse 2. Fourth, from the commendable examples of the good kings of Judah, 2 Chronicles 29, verse 30. Excuse me, 2 Chronicles 29 and 30. Question 6. Doth infidelity or difference in religion make void the magistrate's just and legal authority? No. Doth it free the people from their due obedience to him? No. 1 Peter 2:13, 2, 2nd, excuse me, Romans 13 verses 1, 2, 3 and 4, Titus 1, 3 verse 1. Well then, do not the papists and anabaptists and others err who maintain that subjects ought not to suffer a king that is an infidel or obey that king in his just commands that differ from them in religion? Yes. By what reason are they confuted? First, because we are commanded to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man. 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Namely, in all that they command us, if it be not contrary to God and his command. Otherwise, according to Acts 4, verse 19, it is better to obey God than man. And it is said, for the Lord's sake, that is, because it is God's will to govern us by them. Second, because the Christians that were at Rome were commanded by the Apostle to subject themselves to the higher powers 
and that without exception of religion and piety, and even to the, that heathen, the Romans emperor. Romans 13, verse 1. Third, because the same apostle writing to Titus bids him exhort the Grecians, his hearers, to obey magistrates, what manner of ones soever they be, not only believing ones, but also those that are unbelieving, as then they were most of them. Titus 3, verse 1. Fourth, because when the Apostle Paul was pursued for his life and charged with matters criminal, he appealed unto Caesar. Acts 25, verses 10 and 11. Fifth, because the prophet Jeremiah did own the power of Zedekiah, who had turned aside to a false worship and had despised the path which he had made to the king of Babylon. Ezekiel 17, verses 16 and 17. Now here I pray thee, says the prophet, O my Lord, the king, let my supplications, I pray thee, be accepted before thee. Jeremiah 27, verse 20. 6. Because Christ himself paid tribute to Caesar, though he was free, being both the son of God by nature and son of David by birth. Matthew 22, verse 21. Romans 13, verse 7. 7. Because Paul did own and acknowledge the power of king Agrippa. Acts 26, verse 2. Question 8. Is it the duty of people to pray for magistrates and honor their persons? Yes. 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, and 1 Peter 2, verse 17. Well then, do not some err who deny this? Yes. First, because Samuel, at the request of Saul, whom he knew the Lord had rejected, returned again after him and honored him before the people. 1 Samuel 4, verse 31. Second, because the Lord, having appointed magistrates to administer justice and judgment in his name, is so far pleased to honor them as to call them gods and the children of the Most High. Psalm 82, verse 1 and 6. Third, because the Apostle Peter says, Fear God and honor the King, parallel to what Paul says, Render to all men their due, honor to whom honor is due. 1 Peter 2, verse 17, Romans 13, verse 7. Fourth, because even heathen magistrates are called the Lord's anointed. Isaiah 45, verse 1. And the Lord calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Jeremiah 26, verse 16. If then such magistrates ought to be honored upon that account, much more Christian magistrates. Fifth, because if we be obliged not to speak evil of dignitaries, 2 Peter 2, verse 11, nor revile the gods, Exodus 22, verse 8, we are obliged to honor dignities, for where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. 6. Because God commanded his people, the Jews, to seek the peace of the city, that is, the welfare and prosperity of Babylon, whither he had caused them to be carried away captive, Jeremiah 29, verse 7. 7. Because the prophet, the man of God, besought the man besought the Lord in behalf of Jeroboam and prayed for him, a man that had made apostasy from the true worship of God and had made Israel to sin. 1 Kings 13, verse 3. 8. Because our blessed Savior says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Matthew 22, verse 31. But prayers and supplications are as due to Caesar as custom and tribute, 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 and 2. Ninth, because the apostle commands us to pray for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, which is the cause wherefore we must pray for magistrates. 
For in the apostles' time and long after, magistrates were persecutors of the church of God, and hindereth the members of church, excuse me, members of Christ to live in peace and godliness. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. 10. Because Moses cried unto the Lord in behalf of Pharaoh. Exodus 8, verse 12. Abraham prayed unto God for Abimelech. Genesis 20, verse 17. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Genesis 47, verse 7 and 10. The 11. Because many blessed martyrs going to death have prayed for their persecuting magistrates, following the example and command of our blessed Savior, Luke 23:34 and Matthew 5, verse 44. Question 7. Ought any man at his own hand or at the instigation of another man to assassinate or kill a magistrate or any private or public person under the pretense they are heretics and persecutors of the truth? No. Exodus 20, verse 13. Proverbs 1, verses 10 and 11. Well then, do not those men of the Romish church and others who own this dangerous tenant? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because all sorts of murder is expressly forbidden in the sixth command. Thou shalt not kill. Exodus 20, verse 13. Where there is a clear distinction made by thou between a private man and a public magistrate that doth it by divine authority. Second, because though Saul was a man rejected of God, 1 Samuel 15, 26, Yet David says to the Amalekite, How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? 2 Samuel 1, verse 14. See also 1 Samuel 24, verse 5, and 26, verse 9. Third, because whatsoever may be alleged from Phineas, his fact, Numbers 25, verse 8, from Ehud's fact, in stabbing Egeon, Judges 3, verse 41, from Samuel's fact in killing Agog, 1 Samuel 15:33, and from Elijah's fact in killing the priest of Baal, 1 Kings 19, verse 30. They will not by any means favor private men's assassinations, for certainly Phineas had a divine motion, as Ehud did, stirring him up, which was evident by the Lord's approving the fact and rewarding it. Samuel, no doubt, was moved hereunto by an inward motion and instinct of God and the conduct of his spirit, as was Elijah, so that their facts and such like were altogether particular and cannot be abused by imitation and followed by every one as rules whose calling is not so properly to use the sword of justice. Fourth, because it would bring a mass of confusion to the utter ruin of all society if every man at his own hand might execute vindictive justice upon offenders who deserve it or upon pretense they deserve it, which is to fight against God who is the God of order politic as well as ecclesiastic and not of confusion. Fifth, because the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. James 1 verse 20. Six, because it is a contempt of public law and public order. It is an usurpation of the magistrate's sword, which God hath put into his hand for punishing and protecting. It is an invasion of God's right and prerogative of executing vengeance, which he hath so expressly reserved to himself. Psalm 94 verse 1. 
Romans 12, verse 29, Deuteronomy 23, verse 35, Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. Seventh, because Solomon says, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, Come with us, let us lay wait for blood, let us lurk privily for the innocent, walk not thou in the way with them. Proverbs 1, verses 10 and 11. Eighth, because a righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, much more ought a righteous man to regard the life of his neighbor. Proverbs 12, verse 10. The sin of murder may be many ways aggravated. First, by the quality of the person murdered, whether he be a superior as a magistrate or minister or parent, whether he be a near relation as a brother or near kinsman. Secondly, from the manner, extreme cruelty being used or sudden and unexpected death, putting a man to eternity in the twinkling of an eye, to which we may add deliberation and premeditate murder, of which Solomon speaks in the foresighted place. Question 9. Are ecclesiastical persons exempted from due obedience to the magistrate? No. Romans 13, verse 1, 1 Kings 2, verse 26, Acts 25, verse 9 and 10 and 11, 2 Peter 3, verse 1, 10 and 11, Jude 8 and 9 to 11. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that the clergy, as they call them, and their goods are altogether free by the law of God from secular powers? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the command of obedience is general and universal. Let every soul be subject. Romans 13, verse 1. Second, because Christ commanded the Pharisees who were of the clergy to render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. Matthew 22, verse 21. Nay, Christ himself paid tribute money, visa fee, in value two shillings and three pence, which Peter found in the fish's mouth which he opened when he opened it. Matthew 17, verse 27. Third, because Paul did acknowledge himself subject to the magistrate when he appealed unto Caesar, Acts 25, verse 11. Fourth, from the example of the priests who were subjected to their kings, did not Abiathar at Solomon's command go to Anathoth, 1 Kings 2, verse 26. This ends side one. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side two. Question 10. Hath the Pope any power or jurisdiction over magistrates and their dominions or over any of their people? No. Revelation 18, verse 15, 16, and 17. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that the Pope of Rome, as Pope, hath full power by divine right over the whole world, as well as matters civil as ecclesiastical? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because Christ expressly discharges his disciples from taking to themselves any such power or dominion. Matthew 20, verse 25, Mark 10, verse 42. Second, because the kingdom of Christ is not of this world. John 18, verse 36. Neither ought the Pope's kingdom to be of this world who calls himself the vicar of Christ, that is, one who supplieth Christ's room and taketh pains for him, his deputy here on earth. Third, because when the people would have made Christ a king, he departed again unto a mountain himself alone. John 6, verse 15. Fourth, because the apostle Peter discharged this dominion. 1 Peter 5, verse 1, 2, and 3. 
fit because it is never heard that any of the apostles did ever use any civil power or command or sat as judges in civil matters but stood always to be judged by civil powers as is evident from the history of the Acts. 6. Because God hath put a difference between the government of the church and the civil government and hath given to each their own proper and distinct officers. Neither can the one invade the other without great sin. Second Chronicles 19 verses 8, 9, and 10 and 11. 7. Because it is the mark of Antichrist to exalt himself above all that is called God. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 4. Chapter 24 of Marriage and Divorce Question 1. Is marriage between one man and one woman? Yes. Is it lawful for a man to have more than one wife or for a woman to have more than one husband at the same time? No. Genesis 2.24, Matthew 19, verses 5 and 6, and Proverbs 2, verse 17. Well then, do not the Anabaptist and Familist err? Familist spelled F-A-M-I-L-I-S-T-S, err, who maintain that it is lawful for a Christian not only to have more wives at the same time than one, but as many as he desires? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the having of two wives or many wives is contrary to the first institution of marriage. For the Lord gave Adam one wife only. Genesis 2.24 Second, because the law of God forbids expressly bigamy or two wives. Leviticus 18.18 Third, because the Lord doth find fault sharply with polygamy or many wives. Malachi 2, verses 14 and 15. Fourth, because Christ says, He that puts away his wife, except in the case of adultery, and marries another, committeth adultery. Matthew 19, verse 9. But if it were lawful to have at one time more wives than one, he should not be guilty of adultery in marrying another, whether he put away the former wife or not. Fifth, because bigamy and polygamy take away the true peace of a wedded life, as is evident from the examples of Jacob, Genesis 30, and Elkaniah, 1 Samuel 1, verse 6. 6. Because the invention of bigamy was the device of a wicked man, Lamech, Genesis 4, verse 19. Question 2. Is it lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent? Yes. Hebrews 13, verse 4, 1 Timothy 4, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 36, 37 and 38, and Genesis 24, verse 57 and 58. Well then, doth not the Popish Church err that forbids and discharges marriage to their churchmen? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because marriage is honorable among all men and the bed undefiled. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Second, because the apostle commands for avoiding fornication every man to have his own wife and every woman to have her own husband. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Third, because the apostle reckons up the forbidding of marriage among the doctrines of devils. 1 Timothy 4, verse 3. Fourth, because a bishop must be the husband of one wife. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 and 4. Titus 1 verse 6 5 because the apostle reckons over the qualifications which are requisite for bishops wives 
1 Timothy 3, verse 11. 6. Because it can be gathered from Scripture that some of the apostles and other ministers of the gospel have been married persons. Concerning Peter, the matter is evident. Matthew 8, verse 14. Mark 1, verse 30. And we read that Philip, the evangelist, had four daughters, all of them prophetesses. Acts 21, verse 9. And says not the apostle, have we not power to leave about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. Question 3. Ought marriage to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden in the word? No. Can incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as these persons may live together as man and wife? Man and wife? No. First Corinthians five verse one, Amos two verse seven, Mark six verse eighteen, Leviticus eighteen verses twenty four, twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven, and twenty eight. Well then, doth not the popish church err? that speaks in the degrees of the Council of Trent after this manner, if any man affirms that these degrees only of consanguinity or affinity which are set down in Leviticus may hinder a contract of marriage to be made or may dissolve a marriage contract already made and that the church hath no power to dispense with some of these degrees, that is to say, permit incest or may not make new laws and constitute far more forbidden degrees than are expressed in Leviticus, let him be an anathema and accursed. Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? Before this be done, take notice that there are here two heads to be considered. First, whether or not we must stand to the forbidden degrees of consanguinity and affinity expressed in Leviticus. Second, whether to these degrees set down as forbidden in Leviticus, new degrees may be added by the Church of Rome. Which will, remit, which will render a marriage incestuous, to which we answer that it is not in the power of any creature to dispense, that is to say, to suffer or allow that to be used, which is forbidden by the law of God with any of these laws in Leviticus, which forbid incestuous marriages. And next we affirm, neither is it in the power of any creature to add to these degrees forbidden in Leviticus any other which are not forbidden, First, because such a power of dispensing is not to be found in all the scripture. Second, because the Lord says expressly, What things soever I command you, observe to do, thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. But the Lord himself hath made these laws, and established these marches, for so sure that no council, no pope, no creature can either dispense with any of them, or add new ones to them. See Leviticus 18. Third, because these laws are of common and perpetual right, and therefore cannot be dispensed with, for the breach of them is reckoned up amongst the abominable, wherewith the nations about polluted and defiled the land. Leviticus 18, verses 24, 25, and 27. Question 4. Is it lawful to marry a second wife after the first is dead? Yes. Is it lawful after divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead? Yes. Matthew 5, verse 31 and 32. Romans 7, verses 2 and 3. Matthew 19, verse 9. 
Well then, do not the Novatians, that's N-O-V-A-T-I-A-N-S, the Puritans of old, truly so-called, and the Tertullianists, that's T-E-R-T-U-L-I-A-N-I-S-T-S, there, who absolutely condemn second marriages? Yes. This absurd tenet is confuted from Romans 7, verse 2 and 3, and from 1 Corinthians 7, 39. Do not likewise the papist heir who deny that after divorce, second marriages are permitted to Christians? Yes, but here, by two distinctions, they explain their mind. First, they distinguish between cohabitation, the bed, and the tie. The first is the dwelling together of man and woman in one family. The second is the right of giving and requiring due benevolence. The third is that whereby both are made one, whereby the one cannot be but the other, while they are both living. They distinguish next between persons that are believers and that are unbelievers. If then both parties, or one of them, be unbelievers, they grant the marriage is valid, both as to cohabitation, to the marriage bed, and to the tie or bond. But if both parties be Christians, they think that the marriage may be dissolved as to bedding together and cohabitation. Yet the bond standeth sure and abideth unloosable, especially if the marriage be contracted after baptism. And therefore a second marriage after divorce is unlawful to any of them. But this is easily confuted. First, because Christ permitted marriage after divorce, Matthew 5, verse 31 and 32, and Matthew 19, verse 9. Here Christ, forbidding a man to put away his wife and to marry another, in express words, accepts the case of fornication. Therefore he suffers or allows a man to put away his wife in the case of fornication and to marry another. Second, because the apostle says, But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart, for a brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. Therefore, if a brother or sister, when there is such a willful and obstinate desertion, be not under bondage, then surely the bond is dissolved, and all remedies being tried in vain for bringing back the obstinate party, I doubt not, but the innocent party may marry another without blame. If this be, then, much more may the innocent person marry another when a divorce is obtained. Question 5. Is nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate a sufficient cause of dissolving the bond of marriage? Nothing. Matthew 19, verse 8 and 9, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, Matthew 19, verse 6. Well then, do not the enthusiast and familist err, who maintain that it is free for a man to put away his wife when he pleaseth? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the God of Israel hateth putting away. Matthew, Malachi 3, verse 16. That's Malachi 2, verse 16. Second, because whosoever putteth away his wife, except in case of fornication, he causeth her to commit adultery. Matthew 5.32 Third, because the apostle says, Art thou bound to a wife? Seek not to be loosed. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 27 Do not likewise the papist heir who maintain that there are other causes of divorce than adultery and willful desertion? Yes. 
The first tells us that marriage contracted and not consummated may be dissolved vis-a-vis by a monastic vow of a perpetual single life. They tell us, secondly, that infidelity and heresy are just causes of divorce. So say the Anabaptists. And thirdly, they tell us that murder committed upon the hope of getting such a match is a sufficient cause of divorce. That coldness, perpetual impotency, and such like fancies are causes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because Christ says, What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Matthew 19, verse 6. But marriage contracted and ratified, though not consummated, is made by God. Therefore it cannot be dissolved by man. Neither ought any man once married to turn a monk for a single life is only fit for those that have the gift of continency. For God commands them that they that have it not to marry. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9. Second, neither can infidelity or heresy be a ground of divorce, as is clear from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 and 13. If any man hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And if the woman hath a husband that believeth not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. Chapter 25 of the Church, Question 1. Doth the Catholic or universal Church, which is invisible, consist of the whole number of elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof? Yes, Ephesians 1, verses 10, 22, and 23. Ephesians 5, verses 23 and 27. Colossians 1, verse 18. Well then, doth not the Popish Church err, who deny any Catholic invisible church, consisting of the elect only, effectually called, who maintain the Catholic Church to be absolutely visible, and as visible a society as the Republic of Venice or the Kingdom of France, and that it consists no less of reprobates, unbelievers, great and manifest sinners, void of all inward and true graces, than of the elect effectually called? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because we profess to believe, according to the creed, that there is a church universal, namely such as one as we have now described, but what we believe must be invisible. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Second, because the internal form of the church, namely her effectual calling by the word and spirit, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, is invisible. 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11. Third, because the glory of the king's daughter, that is, of the universal church, as the adversaries themselves confess, is internal and therefore hidden and invisible. Psalm 45, verse 13. Fourth, because the word tells us that there is a church, even the number of those whom Christ hath loved, for whom he gave himself to the death, whom he hath sanctified and washed and cleansed and redeemed with his own blood, and whom at last he will glorify. Ephesians 5, verse 25, 26, and 27. Fifth, because the scripture tells that there is a church which is the mystical body of Christ and therefore invisible to the eyes, which by a most mystical and most marvelous union is conjoined and united straightly with him. Ephesians 1, verses 10, 22, and 23. Sixth, because the church universal, 
as to its internal forms, is a spiritual house built of lively stones in Christ. 2 Peter 2, verse 5. Seventh, because the members of the church universal, considered as to their internal state and condition, are united and conjoined together in one body by one spirit and by one faith. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Ephesians 4, verse 4, and 5. 8. Because the members of the church universal, considered the former way, are the lively members of Christ, which he himself doth cherish with a lively and quickening nourishment. Ephesians 5, verses 29 and 30. Question 2. Is the visible church under the New Testament Catholic and universal? Yes. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2 and 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13, Psalm 2, verse 8, Revelation 15, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. Well then, do not the independents err who maintain there is no visible church under the New Testament except what may meet in one place and may perform all their holy services in a private church? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because in very many places of the New Testament the word church vis-a-vis visible is so largely taken that it cannot be restricted to any particular congregational church. Acts 9 verse 3, Galatians 1 13, Acts 2 47, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32, Ephesians 3 verse 10, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 28, 1 Timothy 3 verse 15. Second, because it hath been foretold in many places of the Old Testament that the Catholic Church shall be visible. Psalm 22, verses 22, 25, 27, 28. Psalm 72, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. Psalm 84, verse 9. Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3 and 4. Zechariah 14, verses 9 and 14. Third, because the donation or the gift of the kingdom that is, of the church universal made by the Father to the Son is universal and of all the world. Psalm 2, verses 8. Psalm 72, verse 2. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Daniel 7, verse 14. Fourth, because the gospel of the kingdom is universal and according to the style of Scripture, worketh the visible conversion of the whole world and therefore the church visibly converted and gathered together is Catholic and universal. Matthew 26, verse 13. Mark 14, verse 9. Colossians 1, verse 16. Fifth, because the visible charter which constitutes the church is universal, and therefore since one charter constitutes one policy or government, all the visible particular churches which are constituted by that one Catholic charter are one church universal. Matthew 28, verse 19. Ephesians 3, verse 6. 6. Because if there be officers of church visible universal, there must be a church visible universal itself. But the first is true since the donation of the ministry and the giving of it in a gift is made to the Catholic Church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19. 7. Because there is a general outward call and a general outward covenant into which all Christians enter outwardly by virtue whereof all of them are knit and tried together. Acts 2.39 8. Because that same individual system and body of external laws proceeding from that same authority in which all particular churches are equally concerned 
and by that which they are ruled is universal. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 3. Ninth, because that external union of brotherhood which is amongst all the visible Christians in the world is Catholic and universal. Acts 15 verse 23, Acts 24 verse 14, Galatians 5 verse 14. Tenth, because the initial visible seal, admittance, and enrollment are things Catholic and ecumenical. For he that takes up his freedom in a whole corporation or kingdom is free of the whole and in every part thereof and hath right to all the general principles and immunities thereof. There is a parent for baptism. Go, excuse me, there is a patent for baptism. Go and baptize all nations. And by virtue of the privileges thereof, they that are baptized in any one church are accounted visible subject of Christ's kingdom in all places of the Christian world. Matthew 28, verse 19. Eleventh, because all churches are one body. Romans 12, verse 5. Twelfth, because Peter, writing to the strangers scattered abroad throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, call them all one flock. 1 Peter 5, verse 2. Thirteenth, because all the churches of the world are one shepherd. Sheepfold, John 10, verse 16. Fourteenth, because the visible church is one great house. 2 Timothy 2, verse 20. This ends tape number eight of Truth's Victory Over Error by David Dixon. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Truth, Victory Over Error by David Dixon, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listing. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.